Hi, everyone. Welcome to Fire the Canon. Usually, we're a podcast that likes to sort of break down the books in the Western canon and decide if they belong or not. And this week is one of our sort of semi-regular interviews with people whose work I personally like. (laughs) Anyway, look forward to that. We will get to our guest in just a minute. First, I'm your host, Rachel. I'm your other host, Jackie. I'm the producer, Theo. And we have a great guest. He is one of my favorite sci-fi writers. And the first book in the Hexarchate series. Am I pronouncing that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Yeah, it is pronounced book. You got it right. (laughs) Nine Fox Gambit is one of my favorites. I like every book in the series, but I highly recommend you start there. Unless, of course, you are in the mood for something a little bit more refreshing, more middle grade. Then perhaps there's another book that you might like to read. It's called the Thousand Worlds series, and the first book is Dragon Pearl. The second book is Tiger Honor, and that came out in January. Mm. Wow. Yes. So anyway, if you have any middle schoolers or precocious elementary schoolers or just people who like middle grade books, I highly recommend Dragon Pearl, which I have read and enjoyed and given to a friend's child, and they also really liked it. Mm-hmm. Haven't read the sequel yet, but I look forward to it. So anyway, here's our guest, Yoon Ha Lee. Pleased to meet y'all. Yes, good to meet you. Nice to meet you too. I was wondering if Rachel was ever going to say our guest name. I was building up <laughs> She finally to it. got to it. Yeah, <laughs> also, it's going to be in the title of the episode, so I think they'll know. Yeah, true. So normally when we do guest episodes, they're a lot looser than our usual which if our audience has listened to any of them, I feel like that's very obvious. So for this episode, we kind of had a topic that we wanted to sort of focus on, but of course we're free to go wherever we want. So we were going to talk about space operas this time. Yay, space opera, my favorite genre. (laughs) In case that wasn't obvious, that's pretty much all I write these days. I mean, that's great. Everybody dreams of being able to write their favorite subgenre all the time. (laughs) I mean, some people just dream of being able to write. True. Full stop. True. So embarrassing to say, but until I looked it up today, I didn't exactly know what a space opera was because I didn't realize that it doesn't actually involve opera like the musical form. So, um, I, yeah, I I guess that would be obvious, but I just didn't know. So maybe for people who don't know also, like, Yoon, if you want to, could you kind of just describe what space opera is? Sure. And actually, I get this question a lot when I do school visits or school talks because middle graders are new to science fiction. They don't know all the 500 million subgenres. The Ur space opera that everyone in the modern era is familiar with is Star Wars. It's got robots, it's mm. got space travel and planets, it's got big space battles, but it also kind of plays fast and loose with science and technology. Like, as far as I know, the force is not real. You know, the, the sort of magical effects that you can do using the force do not happen in real life. Right. So space opera is known for being a little bit fast and loose with the laws of physics in service of a fast, um, dramatic, interesting story. Hmm. Like a grand tale is more important than yeah. science. 100%. 
it's typically a story that's told on a very large scale. You know, the fates of empires or huge nations. Um, hmm. Again, the big space battles are very characteristic. It's not so much people in a single space station, like, doing their politics. Hmm. Uh, it, it really tends to be that huge scale that makes it a, differentiates it from some of the other genres. Hmm. Yeah, it's not just Hal versus one guy. It's It's got to be a lot of <laughs> players involved. Yes. <laughs> um, and we covered uh, one of the most popular space operas, and I didn't even realize it was one, but Dune, right? Um, yes. Yep. I guess the term comes from, like, the opera part of it comes from, like, a, like a soap opera, basically, right? Mm-hmm. Uh. Yeah. When I was looking this up, um, I, I think it was the Wikipedia page, and it was comparing it to other genres that were sort of in the opera realm as well. So like soap opera, space opera. And then there was something called horse opera, which is like like a Western type of template. Uh. I think that was the first one. Um, and they were making fun of the genre. So it was yeah. originally a derogatory term. Oh, oh okay. Because <laughs> calling it opera makes it sound more highbrow. Elevated, yeah. Right. I'm glad I know what a space opera is because horse opera, I would have been really confused. <laughs> I was just going to kind of ask, yeah. um, what kind of got you into science fiction slash, you know, space operas as your favorite genre? You know, my parents, when I was six years old and they had no concept of child appropriateness, showed me the entire Star <laughs> Wars trilogy. Uh-huh. I had nightmares because um, I hope I'm not spoiling Star Wars for anyone <laughs> at this end of time. But you know that scene where Luke Skywalker's hand gets cut off? Mm. I had nightmares. I was terrified. But I also loved the robots and the lightsabers and, and the big spaceships. So that entered my imagination. And then I sort of wandered away for science fiction for a few years until elementary school when I got into Anne McCaffrey's Dragon Riders of Pern. We've talked about that on the podcast very briefly. Yeah, um, Anne McCaffrey sort of, you know, there are some issues with her work from a modern perspective, but she was really good at drilling down into what appeals to the id and sort of having your own personal dragon who loves you and adores you and thinks you're the best person on earth. That is a very, very itty um, trope. Mm. So I got into Anne McCaffrey and from Anne McCaffrey, I jumped to other science fiction authors and the rest is history. So when you said you took a break from sci-fi, you mean from like the age of six to the age of nine. And ever since then, you've been back. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I spent right. that time yeah. reading um, horse books. I was really into horses. And actually, the jump was sort of like from horses to unicorns to spaceships. Mm-hmm. Logical trajectory, yeah. <laughs> yes, it, it, it's sort of funny. Um, so I'm curious, when did you start writing? I decided to start writing in third grade because I had a teacher named Mr. McCracken, and every week he would dress up in a superhero costume, which I realize now was probably a Superman costume, but I didn't know about Superman. This was in South Korea. And he <laughs> would dress up as Story Man and teach us creative writing. And at that point, I didn't realize where books came from. Like, I loved to read, but I sort of had this vision in my head that 
every so often, the ceiling of the library would open up and books would fall down from the heavens, <laughs> you know, like mana. Mm-hmm. And that was where books came from. And Mr. McCracken made it clear to us that human beings wrote books, like authors wrote books. Oh, wow. And I said to myself, wow, if people write books, maybe I can write a book someday. And I started <laughs> writing these really terrible short stories and forced my little sister to read them. And that was how I got started. <laughs> That's, That's great. That's so interesting. I, I feel like most people couldn't pinpoint the moment when they realized there's such a thing as an author. Yeah, it, it was a big revelation. It's not like today where authors are on Twitter and TikTok and have YouTube channels. You know, the connection between writers and readers was much more tenuous. I mean, I knew there was sort of like, you know, on the back flap of a dust jacket, there would be about the author and a photograph. But that didn't really feel real to me. I was like, maybe they're fake. Mm. These books come from <laughs> heaven. Yeah. So were your first stories that you were writing in English or in Korean? I went to an international school because um, Korean was my first language, but I was sent to American and English-speaking schools, so I'm really only fluent in English. And my first stories were in English. Um, They were what we would call really bad fanfic with the serial numbers (laughs) filed off. So I read The Black Stallion by Walter Farley, which is about, you know, horse racing. And I wrote like a three-page story about a horse named Thunder and (laughs) uh, horse racing. Racing. Um, I read Robin <laughs> McKinley's The Hero and the Crown, and I was like, wow, dragon slaying, very cool. So I wrote a story that was a, a complete ripoff of Robin McKinley. And <laughs> I apologize to McKinley fans and to Ms. McKinley herself as well. But I was in fourth grade and I didn't know anything about copyright infringement. <laughs> <laughs> as someone who went to law school, I can Whoa. tell you you're safe from a legal perspective. I don't think you, she's going to come after you at I this don't know, point. This podcast could be. <laughs> evidence. (laughs) That's interesting. I mean, but if someone had pointed out to you the similarities, do you think you would have you would have argued with them or you would have accepted it? No, I was trying to write a story that was as similar as possible, but, you know, four pages long instead of, like, 300 pages long. So, like, (laughs) Essence of McKinley, because I really admired those stories. And I was like, wow, I love that story. So I want to make my own version of it. That's amazing. Do you still try to make your books as short as possible? Because they're pretty long, some of them. (laughs) Um, I do, but in context, the longest book I've written is 120,000 words, which is around 400 pages. Oh, because it sounded really long when you said just the word number. I was like, (laughs) what? (laughs) Well, for perspective, my friend Seth Dickinson, who writes the masquerade fantasy novels, uh, he once turned in a manuscript that was 300,000 words and almost killed his editor in the process. And they had to split it up into two books and cut the word count. So Nine Fox Gambit was like, I think, 80 or 90,000 words. And Mm -hmm. each volume in the trilogy kept getting longer and longer. And I'm like, (laughs) I don't want to write long books because more words is more work. And fundamentally, I'm very lazy. Like, I want to write the fewest words I can get away with and have a novel. That's why I'm a poet. And uh, Theo's a composer. So no words at all. (laughs) No words at all. (laughs) And notes are no work. I think um, Ada Palmer, who we just had on our most recent interview, she said that she also wrote like a giant door stopper and the editor said, no, (laughs) we're cutting this in half. So I think that's what happened with those as well. I just lent 
Nine Fox Gambit to my sister last night Mm -hmm. because she was like, oh, what are you doing on the podcast? And I saw it lined up on the bookshelf with all the others. And I did notice, like, are these getting bigger as it goes on? They were getting bigger. (laughs) And I was like, I don't like this trend. I really don't like this trend. Let's nip this in the bud. Yeah, I'm curious. Is it just that you find more in this world that you like and you just... It just is a natural thing that you just want to write more about it or something? Like, why, why do you think they get longer? Well, want is a strong word. The original draft <laughs> of Revenant Gun was 80,000 words, which is the same length as Nine Fox Gambit. But because it's a trilogy, I had all these plot threads that needed to be wrapped up, right. and I needed more words to do it. And I ended up adding a POV, which was where most of that 40,000 word um, difference came from. So adding the new character and wrapping up the threads and, you know, I didn't even wrap up all the threads because there are some (laughs) loose ends dangling in Revenant Gun. But that's really what it came down to was, you know, as this world grows, it becomes more complex and there are more things that readers will want to know about. Now, can we expect you to address those dangling threads in a future? book? I wish I could. I would love to do it someday. So this is not an absolute no, but right now I am under contract for four books, which um, book three in The Thousand Worlds and a young adult trilogy. So it's not happening soon. Mm. So you're really all over the demographic map, it seems like. Yes, this is not really what they advise you to do um, in terms of writing careers. Mm. They usually advise you to pick a lane and stick in it. But what happened was that um, my former agent, Jennifer Jackson, found out about the Rick Riordan Presents imprint um, starting up in middle grade. Mm -hmm. And she said, Yoon, you're Korean. You could write books about Korean mythology. And I gave it a try. And the other thing that she um, saw as a very savvy agent was that middle grade pays much better than adult science fiction and fantasy. Hmm. Really? To give you some concrete numbers, my advance for Nine Fox Gambit was $8,000. My advance for Dragon Pearl was $60,000. Wow. That's significant. (laughs) An order of magnitude different, yeah. How much of that, though, is just that you are an established writer versus middle grade against adult? Um, Part of it was that I had a sort of a track record of turning in books on time, which editors really like. (laughs) Pay a premium for that. (laughs) Writers are a notoriously flaky lot. But part of it really is that um, Nine Fox Gambit was picked up by a small press in the UK because all the major publishers turned it down. Disney Hyperion, which published Dragon Pearl, is a major publisher and middle grade is just a bigger market. And then when I jumped into YA, the advance um, for that trilogy came to 166000 per book. So again, it's not that I don't want to write more Hexarchet books. It's just that I would literally be taking like a 90% pay cut. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's I mean, lot. no pressure. <laughs> I just really like them. <laughs> no, I really loved writing them too. I love the world. And I'm hoping that in some way I'll be able to return to them someday. But mm-hmm. it'll most likely be the thing that I do for love and not the thing that I do to pay off the mortgage. Yeah. Or Rachel could subsidize them. <laughs> You're offering to, right? I'll give you my percentage of our Patreon cut. So that's about $30 a month, no. if that sounds good. <laughs> 
Yeah, I was going to ask you because I was looking over your website and I think maybe it was Rachel that just mentioned something like you you have like even within the realm of like writing novels, you have a lot of different strategies, like you said, Mm -hmm. and you don't just like pick one lane and stick to it. But you just like have it seems like so many different creative outlets in general. Like so on on your website, there's novels, poetry, games like you code would you call them com- computer games, video games? I sound like I'm a thousand years old. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. I, I mostly write interactive fiction, text-based games. Okay. I did one called Winter Strike for Fail Better Games, who is better known for um, Fallen in London. And that mm-hmm. was sort of mostly narrative game with some very simple graphics on top, but mostly story-based games. Okay. Mm. But mostly story-based games. But still, I mean, oh. there's like so much going on there. Like, do you still do any of those I don't want to call them smaller projects, but smaller than a novel, right? Like a poem or or a game. Are you still kind of working on those? Some text-based games, like I can, well, those if I they're can multiple imagine, yeah. choice, they can really yeah. mushroom. They balloon. <laughs> yeah, actually, writing interactive fiction is a non-trivial um, endeavor. I, I do them from time to time, and I like keeping my fingers in different pies. I'm interested in <laughs> narrative in all its forms. Um I compose as a hobby. I write text games as a hobby. Once in a while, I write poetry. I've had some poetry published, but a typical pay rate is like $5 per poem. So I decided that this was not worth sinking tons of time into. I mean, I love poetry, but again, it's that I have a mortgage to pay and a kid to send to college. So Mm. yeah, (laughs) I mean, not that I'm like the arbiter of what's good poetry on this podcast. I am of the of the three of us, but um. I don't know. We each only get one vote, Jackie. (laughs) That's true. Well, I think your poetry is really, really good. And um, it's not to say that, like, well, you have to go to an MFA program or you can't write good poetry, but, like, you didn't go to an MFA program, and yet you're writing, I don't know, what I consider to be very high-quality poetry. Um, Is that just something that you practice? Oh. (laughs) Like, how do do you do that? Can I do that? Oh, thank you. you Um, I actually have loved poetry since childhood. Um, My parents had copies of Khalil Gibran's uh, The Prophet and the Garden of the Prophet. I would sit in the library as a high schooler and copy poetry from the library stacks into my assignment book instead of like actually working on homework. Mm -hmm. So I studied poetry a lot. You know, I wouldn't say I'm an expert. I did not take any literature courses on the subject, but I'm very interested in it. I still read poetry. Yeah, It's just one of those things that works better for me as a hobby than as something. I have friends who are poets and let's, Let's just say that the United States is not friendly to poets trying to make a living at their job. No. Right. Nope. Very, very hard. I'm actually curious about the like the, the interactive fiction, like the text-based games. Because sure. one time I tried to make one of those kind of for fun. Mm-hmm. Kind of for fun. <laughs> well, it turned out I, I found it not very fun as I was making it because I kept feeling like, oh, I'm making these different routes that someone will play this and they'll never see this thing that I made. Mm-hmm. Yep. I want people to like appreciate like the thing, the whole thing, you know, but they won't get to see certain parts of it. And like, I was thinking like there is like, I don't really know another art form that's quite like that. 
I actually sort of started out not in interactive fiction, but in game books, you know, like choose your own adventure books, some of which additionally have mechanics like the fighting fantasy or lone wolf books. And again, you know, you write this thing with like 600 sections and somebody plays through it. And, you know, even if you only have two choices per entry, it means that they only see a fraction of the amount of writing that you've done unless you can convince them to replay it. And the thing that I tell myself when I make something like that is that no one person is going to see all the paths. But if I get enough of an audience, different people will see different paths. And I have to tell myself that that is that is enough. But I agree. It's a little disheartening (laughs) that, for example, Winter Strike was literally 40,000 words long. But because it's interactive fiction, no one person ever sees all of those 40,000 words. I've done an interactive fiction game once, one time. Mm -hmm. You know, I had all these grand ideas for how many different endings and stuff. But I was at the end, I'm like, okay, no, you're going to have four endings and that's it. But so Mm -hmm. it was about um, like, being the Loch Ness monster, but you don't find out that they're the Loch Ness monster until a little bit further on. And but anyway, I I was happy with it, but I thought, okay, that's enough for now. <laughs> yeah, no, there's a reason when um, even those big AAA games usually don't have like 200 different customized endings. They'll only have a small number of big major endings because it's so much labor to customize all of those different paths. Mm-hmm. Right. It is a lot. <laughs> we kind of talked about potentially doing a bonus episode where we read through a choose your own adventure, mm-hmm. something like that, right guys? Yeah. So the books themselves are not huge, but when you're working your way through it, it's quite short. So I think we'd have to do multiple routes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I may have mentioned this to Rachel and Theo before, but I remember like as a little kid, I would like read a lot of little scary stories and things like that. And I remember specifically there were some choose your own adventure, like little horror things for kids. Mm -hmm. I was too impatient. Like I couldn't I couldn't just go through the whole thing. Like I would flip through the entire book all the time and like look through all the, you know, the little endings and everything. Also, cheating is rampant. Cheating is, yes, basically that's what I was doing. You're part of the problem. I considered myself like a voracious reader, but really I was just cheating. (laughs) Yeah. That's okay. I think game book authors um, acknowledge that everybody gets to that point where like, okay, I haven't beaten this thing in three tries. I'm just going to read straight through and decode it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's the thing about um, having the physical version versus playing it on the computer. If you have the physical book, you can just like flip around and say, oh, that's interesting. I remember I would always want to give myself one oopsie. So like I would always hold the page and then flip. And if I Mm -hmm. died, I would always be like, okay, this is my one. And I'd turn back. Did you really hold to that though? (laughs) more honorable than Jackie. (laughs) Because what happens if you die? You're just like, oh, I guess I put this book down and I can't have fun anymore with it. You start over from the beginning. Yeah, you start over from the beginning. Oh, okay. I guess that's fine. (laughs) Yeah, you just give up (laughs) on the book. I think you need to be much more disciplined. You're just like, well, I didn't deserve to have this book. (laughs) They need to write more of these goosebumps choose your own adventures because I just flipped through like three pages and I'm dead. I got to go to the next book. (laughs) That doesn't make any sense. That's not how like say a video game works at all where like you die one time and you're like, I guess I can't play this anymore. (laughs) But I don't know anything about those because the only game I play is Spyro. And it's like you still play it like currently. <laughs> yeah. What? 
You never talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to be just very straightforward here. I have no idea what I'm talking about. But Spyro— You've apparently been playing Spyro for like 20 years. I hope you know what you're talking no, about. No, I, I only started in college. Ian, do you know what Spyro is? <laughs> no, but I mean, there are 5 million video games. I don't expect to have heard of them all. <laughs> it, it was like a PlayStation 1 video game. He's, he's yeah, a little purple was. dragon. Tiny purple dragon. Yeah, like a quite old well, game. <laughs> To be honest, this is baffling that this would be the one game. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's... <laughs> He's really so cute, it, though. Yeah. Yeah, and you can download it and play it on the Xbox or whatever, because, you know, yeah, I, I don't play any other game. games, so I just have the one. Yes, but you can play it on the Xbox. You own an Xbox, <laughs> and the only thing you play on it is you download <laughs> a copy of Spyro from PlayStation 1, and you've been playing it for 10 years. So yeah. I don't know anything about Spyro specifically, but I mean, I've been playing games since like we had cassette drives on computers and uh -huh. some of the old games have really good gameplay just because it's old doesn't mean it's not good. So I say go for no, it. No, it's just, the, it's funny that that's her only game. <laughs> well, I, it's not my Xbox. It's just uh, somebody else games and then I just play it. But um, it's, here's the funny thing about continuing to play Spyro. It does not have good gameplay. It's hard. And the reason it's hard is because it's just like the technology, the graphics are so bad. Like you try to fly him to one spot and it's like 20 pixels that way or 20 pixels this way is the only place you can go, you know, whatever. Like it's not it's not very highly attuned at all. So it's just frustrating because it's bad. I remember when I was a kid, I thought, oh, the camera in this game is so frustrating. Like, you, mm -hmm. yes. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> the camera is extremely frustrating. All the controls are backwards and I don't know why, but I'm just <laughs> like, the they are. <laughs> She's holding the controller upside down. <laughs> if this is the only game you ever play, what do you mean the controls are backwards? This is how controls are so, for you. So. <laughs> like if I go to a friend's house and I play Mario Kart or something, like it's it's backwards from every other game. <laughs> well, when I was at Thea's house for New Year's, we played, what was it, an N64? It was crazy old. I remember playing video games when um, auto mapping is pretty much ubiquitous these days. But in those days, games did not come with any sort of auto mapping feature. And I would sit there with a pencil and a sheet of oh. graph paper <laughs> and map the stupid bloody dungeons. Whoa. I am so glad that auto mapping exists. They have giant arrows that tell you where to go for the next quest <laughs> yeah. in your quest chain. Some of the old games did not have a quest log, so if you didn't write it down and you forgot, you were just out of luck. I mean, I, I, oh, I am so glad that games have become more user-friendly. <laughs> yeah, really. Wow, you were a cartographer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you had to have wild. skills. You need to add that to your list. <laughs> Put that another tab on your website. But, I mean, I'm imagining an archaeologist in the future, like, digging up some like teenager from the early 90s or something like game log or quest log and just being like what were they doing you know because <laughs> yeah, right. me not knowing about that I would have assumed well if it's written down this must have been something they did in real life <laughs> this child was exploring dungeons <laughs> you know a friend of mine um, they were playing some ancient computer game their father had played and it was one of those old games again before maps were a standard feature yeah. their father had mapped the game and they were like this is awesome i don't have to do go to the work and they just used their dad's maps well their dad shouldn't have let them do that he should have made them pull themselves up by their bootstraps <laughs> yeah, right. there's a, a popular game that just came out that i've heard about um i think it's by the same 
company that made The Witcher or whatever, and it, it's apparently mm-hmm. notorious for not having a map ah. now. So it's extremely hard. Mm. Go ahead, say what it is. I don't know what it is. <laughs> I can't remember the name oh. of it. <laughs> Spyro 3. Are you talking about Elden Ring? Maybe. I don't know. It just came okay. out like the other week. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but now, so now they've gone from like not having maps to having maps, and now they're like, we need to go back the other direction. <laughs> There's an argument in the video gaming community about like accessibility, you know, like how accessible should a game be? And like, well, maybe the developer wants it to be difficult, but that leaves people out and all this stuff. So I, I don't play a ton of games. Why should those be mutually exclusive? I mean, I don't, I'm on the side of accessibility, but. So you know. my husband is a hardcore gamer. He always plays plays everything on nightmare hell destructo mode you know where where you lose all your hit points and there's no save points and if you die it's like permanent you know there are games where you can you can set you know iron man mode or no save or you can put mm. it in story mode so the combats are really easy so i don't see that these have to be mutually exclusive you can give people the option of a more accessible game and also enable like those hardcore modes for idiots like my husband who want to play the <laughs> games in the most difficult, frustrating... It's like he doesn't even sound like he's having fun because he's cussing at the game and pounding on his desk and I'm like, why do you do this to yourself if you're not having fun? And he's like, this is the only way to play. And I'm like, okay, I wash my hands of this. Okay. <laughs> but you don't have to play. <laughs> he does it in the first run-through of the game, in the hard mode on the first run-through? Um, not necessarily on the first run-through, but uh-huh. That is his ultimate goal. Okay. <laughs> I mean, like, the, I thought the kind of one of the ideas behind gaming is like, and it's it's an escape from life instead of just it's also permanent when I die in this world. I don't well, want that. Well, <laughs> it could be much worse than your regular life. That's also an oh, okay. escape. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> an escape into a much worse life. Yeah. My boyfriend recently started playing a particular game again, like a multiplayer game called Splatoon where mm-hmm. it's kind of like a paintball. I don't know how familiar you are with it. My daughter plays it. That's what I tell him because he keeps playing the game and he's there's no voice chat which is great but he's always like yelling and he's like oh why would you do that and I always pop in and I'm like maybe they did that because they are literal children because I think a lot of children also <laughs> play this game. <laughs> and you pop but- in and you just say this to him and he's like get out of here why do you do this to me every day? <laughs> he also like the other day I woke up from sleeping because I heard him downstairs. He'll usually curse a lot, but this time he just yelled one word, which was ass. <laughs> like he's cursing so much because of this game that he's just not really doing it properly anymore. So he's like devolving into child cursing. Almost. Yeah. But I've had three people come over and witness him playing and be like, does he really like this? And he always says, yeah, I do. There's this... um nonfiction book like on game studies from MIT Press and it's about questioning the premise that people play games to have fun because (laughs) when this researcher studied the actual you know emotions that gamers evince while they're playing it's like no they seem to be playing in order to have pain they are masochists (laughs) well it was just such a funny sentence that you just said because I I know we're talking about like video games gaming but I imagined you were talking about just games in general like the fact that people play 
it's not for fun. It's like in the animal <laughs> kingdom where it's like, this, yeah. is, this is practice for war or yeah, right. this is just to feel <laughs> something for once. I don't know if you've played the labyrinth board game before, Yoon, but it is very <laughs> no, poorly Rachel, nobody has ever played this board game. I, we are the, I'm the first person There's that ever no bought that reason. board game and the last. <laughs> it is so poorly constructed. We, The three of us really love the movie Labyrinth with David mm-hmm. Bowie. It's like a, yep. a <laughs> focus point for our friendship for some reason. It's a touchstone. It's a spoke in one of the wheels. It's a touchstone, yeah. 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 It's the center and we're the spokes going out of it. (laughs) But one year, so we usually like to hang out around New Year's Eve because we all live in different places, but our families are in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. So uh, we like to hang out on New Year's Eve when possible. And one year, Jackie gave me for my birthday the Labyrinth board game. Mm -hmm. So one person plays as Jareth the Goblin King and then the other people, who are we? We're, We're just all the other characters. And it's... Jareth versus everyone else. Mm-hmm. And when we started the game, Theo was Jareth and he was loving it. He's like, why did they make this game like this? There is absolutely no way. There's no way for Jareth to lose. Mm, but then yeah. when we reached the end of the game, Theo's like, wait, there's no way for Jareth to win. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess that is how pretty much all movies with, you know, that sort of antagonist are set up. It's they seem impossible to defeat until the last moment and then yeah. But what's compelling in a movie is where you're passively receiving the story is not what's compelling <laughs> in a game where you're, you know, trying to win, you know? Yeah. Like you want to have some sense of agency in the game. Just in my memory, basically what it felt like is I had so much ability to inflict damage on people and I could sort of like teleport around the whole board wherever I wanted. <laughs> yeah. And then suddenly right at the end it was as if he just got like tied up and they were just like kicking <laughs> him or something like that's (laughs) that's how it felt to you yeah (laughs) being kicked and tied up well um yeah no there is a board game that i also forget the name of but it's basically lord of the rings um and the point of the game and it says this like in the instructions like there was never a great chance at all that anybody but sauron was ever going to win in this battle so sauron is completely OP like in the game that's how it's designed like Sauron is almost impossible to beat and that's just how it is and you know that you're if you're playing on on the other side like you're probably gonna lose wow and people still play that voluntarily (laughs) yeah but it's interesting because that's not at all how I felt during the movie I was pretty much like yeah Frodo's got this obviously there, there. I mean, I guess I could sort of see this if you're making a horror game or a horror survival game where mm. the point is to feel very threatened and to mm-hmm. feel that you have a low chance of survival. I don't know if you're familiar with solo RPGs, but there's one called The Wretched, which uses a Jenga tower a mechanic. So every time you do something, you're removing something from this Jenga tower and you're Ooh. always at risk of basically it's survival on a, a derelict starship and you're journaling what happens as everything falls apart and so that's part of the experience but you know you know going in that it's a horror genre that you're probably Mm. not going to live (laughs) (laughs) on a derelict starship i don't know if i'd want to i think the only horror game i've played before is like betrayal at the house on the hill and I get really scared easily, so I was I was a little freaked out the whole time. When the time came that someone betrayed me, I was like, oh, betrayal. I couldn't believe it, even though that's in the name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I'm curious, when you started writing middle grade fiction, mm-hmm. I'm curious, what, was it easy or difficult to sort of 
get in a different because I imagine you have to get in a sort of different headspace to write that kind of stuff. Like maybe do you like imagine what it would be like to be that age and read the book? Like how do you how do you approach it? I, I don't even That's know. a good question. Yeah. Okay, I have to say that um, when Steph Lurie, my editor at Rick Riordan Presents, picked me up, she asked my former agent, "Has you never written middle grade before?" And Jennifer said with one hundred percent complete accuracy, "No, Yoon has not written middle grade before." So to put it bluntly, Steph knew that I was going to be a fixer-upper because (laughs) if you look at the Hexerkit books, they're full of things that are completely inappropriate for middle grade readers, (laughs) like extremely gory violence, um, sexual content that is, uh, you know, unpleasant even for some adult readers, um, just all sorts of situations that are not appropriate for middle grade. Plus the vocabulary level is more difficult. So one of the things that I had to learn in writing Dragon Pearl, which went through three rounds of revisions, was how do I, um, A, write a story that is acceptable for middle grade, um, And this becomes tricky because when you are selling middle grade books, you're not selling directly to 8 to 12 year olds. They don't have credit cards. You are selling (laughs) to the gatekeepers, um, which means their parents. The, their teachers and um, their librarians. And those people often have very strong opinions on what is or is not appropriate for middle grade. So for example, I had a scene in Dragon Pearl that takes place in a gambling parlor. It was my, you know, Star Wars Moss Eisley Cantina homage. <laughs> and homage, I can't pronounce that word. But <laughs> anyway, I got so much pushback from my editor. She's like, no, gambling is like one of those things that really makes the gatekeeper anxious. Hmm. If you keep the gambling parlor, you have to make it 100,000% crystal clear that gambling is morally bad. So how did you do that? (laughs) Uh, You know, I made it clear that this gambling parlor was a bad place. Um, (laughs) But it's one of those things that you have to deal with when you're writing for middle grade. And the other issue is accessibility. So I remember going back and rereading Robin McKinley's The Hero and the Crown a couple years back, and I'm like, wow, this is actually kind of a difficult book. Like, it has these nested um, flashbacks. It uses fairly difficult vocabulary. I loved the book, but I was an avid reader when I was um, in fourth grade when I first came across that book. And a lot of things that teachers especially are looking for are books that are not that kind of challenging, difficult book, but books that are written accessibly for their reluctant readers. Kids who in the past would have been left out in the cold by books like The Hero and the Crown. So that's something else that you kind of have to learn um, going from adult science fiction to middle grade. And it was kind of a steep learning curve for me. Right. Yeah. I wonder, um, do you ever feel either the need to or the desire to like delve more into like child psychology or adolescent psychology? Or do you find yourself kind of naturally thinking about those kinds of things when you're writing for that audience? I think back to my childhood is what I usually do. So for example, um, Dragon Pearl got some negative reviews from adult readers who said Min is a terrible role model. Um, Min is the main character and she's a shape-shifting fox spirit and she can basically mind whammy people and she lies to people constantly. (laughs) And, you know, they're like, she's a horrible role model. She has poor morals. This is bad. It seems like that's, I don't know that much, but that's what a fox spirit does, right? Like they're supposed to trick you, right? (laughs) 
fox spirits are bad people. Like, you know, fox spirits in in Korean mythology anyway, like seduce travelers and suck out their lives and eat their livers. Mm. Some of this was not material I could put into a book for <laughs> 8 to 12. You know, we're not having any seductions of travelers in this book. It's not appropriate. Right. When you write for kids, it's like, what do kids find appealing and cool? <laughs> and Min is basically a power fantasy. She spends the entire <laughs> yeah. book doing whatever she wants, um, thumbing her nose at authority, um, lying and mostly but not always getting away with it. Like, she, you know, the consequences of her actions do eventually catch up with her. But she's supposed to be a fun character for a kid who, when you think about it, children don't really have a lot of agency in their lives. Right. Like, you know, you go to school, the teachers tell you what to do. You go home, the parents tell you what to do. You go to your extracurricular activity, the coach tells you what to do. So having a character who uh, gets to be the hero and gets to choose what to do and have that agency is something that kid readers find very appealing. Yeah, And I remember that from when I was a kid. I didn't want to read books about how kids had adults handle all the difficult things for them. <laughs> I wanted to yeah. read books where kids like me got to be the hero. Hmm. We recently read um, Winnie the Pooh for our podcast, and mm -hmm. we talked about how or Theo particularly talked about how he just loved that the characters, like the, the stuffed animals, will just lie constantly. Mm -hmm. They just go around bullshitting and making stuff up, and they never yeah. learn a lesson that you shouldn't lie. <laughs> and it's just mm -hmm. to save face, usually. Yeah, there's no reason. It's not like they're planning something bad or something with their lies. It's just like they don't know something, so they act like they do. They just yeah. <laughs> well, that's what I'm thinking about with like the child psychology piece. Like I think for kids, kids, those little lies have an adaptive purpose and mm. it's kind of a natural behavior and it's not necessarily something you need to like squash out. It's just something mm -hmm. they need to learn about over time, right? Right. That's why I thought it was cute. <laughs> and also lying is... Um I mean, it, in a certain sense, I lie constantly because I bullshit to make up stories. <laughs> Lying is very yeah. closely allied to the ability to tell a story. Yeah. Mm. I'm just curious because you said you have a daughter, right? Yes. Does having a daughter change your perspective on writing fiction for younger readers? I wrote Dragon Pearl thinking about my daughter. Uh, so my husband is Caucasian. I'm Korean. Arabelle is biracial. Mm. When I was a kid in elementary school, you know, 30 years ago, there were very few books that depicted people who were not white, essentially, right. and very few books that, or maybe no books, really, that depicted characters who were queer. Mm. And so one of the reasons that the Rick Riordan Presents imprint was attractive to me was that Rick Riordan has written queer um, characters in his books, so mm. he is he is very, very accepting of that. And uh, Rick Riordan Presents as an imprint is about... Um, boosting mythologies and stories from cultures that maybe have not been as highly prioritized in literature. Right. Mm -hmm. So, for example, the Arusha books are Hindu mythology. Mm -hmm. And so when I wrote Dragon Pearl, it was with the thought that I could write something that was Korean mythology that could connect her to that part of her heritage. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like she's, if not changed the way you've written, at least kind of thought about like what is important for kids to get to see. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's not like I think that 
only Korean kids should read Korean mythology books or only Black kids should read Kwame Mbalia's Tristan Strong Punches the Sky, which is based on um, African mythology. I, you know, I would hand my daughter books from different mythologies like John Henry, folklore, um, cultures from all around the world, because we all share this world. We all live on the same planet. And I think it's important that we listen to each other's stories. Yeah, well. So did your did your daughter read the book? Did you get it out in time? Yeah, um, <laughs> my daughter is really cynical about the writing process because she sees how the sausage gets made. Yeah. In fact, oh you're not the first person to call it a sausage either on our podcast. That's yeah. so funny. One of the things that she told me was that she did not want to become a writer. And that was because she saw what my job in- entailed. So, of right. course, she wants to be an artist, which I'm not sure is much better <laughs> on the freelance front. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, um, she knows that my rough drafts are vomit drafts. That's what I call them. I just sort of vomit out a draft and everything's very messy. And there are placeholders when I can't think of a word and mm-hmm. uh, everything's written out of old order. So I tell her, you know, you can read this whenever you want. And she inevitably only reads the final published b- version after everything's been fixed. Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah, I I feel like I wish that more things like those rough drafts got published because... Published? Yeah. I was just they- available for people to read. Uh, either. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I would like to read a, a published collection of poems that are shitty because they were the first drafts and then at the you know maybe it's like a translation right you get the first draft and then on the next page Mm. you get the final version i would love that i had a collection like that um by wilfred owen and it showed Uh, like the first draft of his poems and like all the strikeouts and the the places where he was looking for a rhyme and then the final version and you could really see the process Mm. and i've actually um on my patreon i have shared um snippets of my rough draft so that people can see that actually no um whatever you may think of the published draft the (laughs) the rough draft was even worse (laughs) (laughs) oh that's really cool yeah no i i like that a lot because i think it's especially if you're talking about like you know the younger generation and thinking about what it's like to grow up and be an artist or a writer Mm -hmm. it can be hard to realize that your first draft is is not going to be good and that's normal yeah yeah steven my boyfriend has been asking me if he can read the book that i did for naNoWriMo this year Mm -hmm. (laughs) and Mm -hmm. i i have to be like please not now just not now and he's like no i want to read it at any stage i'm like no you do not want to read no, it no you don't stage. <laughs> <laughs> or if you read it at this stage you're not going to want to read it later yeah <laughs> you know it really depends on the writer too like i i know writers who really feed off getting feedback from mm-hmm. you know a trusted friend or an alpha reader very early in the process and for myself um that is helpful and then i know people who if their draft is not polished and shining and diamond perfect sharing it too early actually inhibits their writing process so it really Mm -hmm. varies so tremendously from writer to writer yeah Yeah, for me i'm just like if he doesn't see it right now he can think that it's good but if he sees (laughs) it you're kind of like penelope with the loom like i could just draw this out forever and he's gonna think i'm like the most ingenious writer that ever lived (laughs) 
<laughs> but if funny. I finish it, then that might go away. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it also has to do with the person reading it. Like, I think you probably have to find the right person to read it because mm-hmm. I'm like a classical composer. So, and like the like the way we learn is we take private lessons. So we see someone every week and show them what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And there are some teachers that I learned pretty quickly. You know, I just could not show them unfinished pieces like I just had to Mm -hmm. show them a finished piece get their feedback on that and I would like take that with me later um Mm -hmm. because it was well not every teacher and not every student are well matched for each other like I'm taking art lessons from a private instructor right now and she's a good match for me because she she will notice the tiniest bit of improvement and like zero in on it and praise me for it and help me you know, she'll break things down into the smallest possible chunks so that I can learn them more easily. Hmm. Um, But I had a prior art instructor in an online class that I took, and he would be really good for some people, but because he was super disciplined, he knew so much. But, you know, he was that guy who, like, if you made the tiniest, there was the tiniest flaw in your sketch, he would home in on it and berate (laughs) you over it. And I find that sort of thing incredibly demoralizing. But I, I have friends who would thrive in that kind of environment. So it's really about finding the right match. Mm. Yeah. I had a poetry professor who I loved and and still love. Um, he was my last uh, poetry professor when I did like the like little minor track at UNC or whatever. He had a system of quote unquote grading each poem where um, it would either get like a check, a check plus, a check minus. Um, I forget what's below that, but basically like each one is going to have some type of symbol on it that shows exactly what he thought of it. Mm -hmm. And getting a check plus was incredibly hard. I think I only got one the entire year Mm -hmm. and we would all like kind of covet these and like, you know, hide them like little squirrels and come to each other after class and be like, did McPhee give you a check plus? You got a plus on that. You should you should have gotten a plus on that. That was really good. And just <laughs> I found myself towards the end starting to like frantically be like, I need another check plus. I need it. And then I would like start to like craft my thing to be like, I bet McPhee's gonna like this. Oh, no. That that I think is maybe an example of a very good teacher and a student whose anxiety pushed her into like writing stuff that she wouldn't normally have written because she was like, I just need that little blue check. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember yeah. when I decided I wanted to be a composer, I was at this school where they do um composition classes which is not like normal mm-hmm. so I was taking like the first year composition classes and we would have a, a weekly assignment and I was getting checks on all of them and I was like this is great and then like five <laughs> weeks in I got a check plus and I was like oh there are check pluses <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, what if I never even knew the top of the scale? What if there's like a, a check star or it's something? a check double plus, yeah. Mm. Yeah. And have you done any teaching, Yoon? Uh, I used to teach high school math, actually. Mm. Uh, it was very brief. Uh, I had to leave the profession for health reasons. Oh. And also, mm. honestly, I would have burned out very quickly because my energy levels are not very good. I was that teacher who would stay until like 7 p.m. and the janitors would say, you know, please go home. (laughs) (laughs) We need to mop around you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I appreciate what hard work teaching it is, but it's also hard to do well, I think. I, I have a very long rant that I will spare you about how bad math teaching tends to be in the United States. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Having been a student who routinely failed everything in math, I agree. But it's not my teacher's fault, probably. <laughs> I had one really, really bad math teacher. Like, he was actually really mean also. Mm-hmm. And he ended up kicking me out of his class, even though— 
it's too much to talk about. I didn't do anything wrong, but basically the way he would do it is like if he didn't think that you could get the highest possible score on the AP exam, like a five, he would kick you out of his class after one <laughs> semester. Oh, good and boy. he was really mean to me all year because I had like a reputation of being loved by teachers and he was a contrarian. <laughs> so as oh. soon as I showed up, he's like, just because other teachers love you, that doesn't mean you're going to get that same treatment here. He did all kinds of bad stuff. Sorry, does that mean he was like really great to the kids who other teachers hated? He was like, you uh, know what? I know that you've gotten a rough reputation, but you're going to become my baby. Or maybe he just hated everyone. He, uh, kind of. But he did. He he made me announce in front of the entire class that I had gotten my period and oh my needed Jesus. to go to the nurse. Because oh, I tried to whisper it. I was like, can I please go to the nurse's office? And he was like, why? And I tried to say why. And he's like, say it louder. And he made me say it louder and louder. That's terrible. Anyway, it was That's bad. That's when you yell it and you embarrass the teacher. It embarrassed me, but he got fired yeah. because he called a girl a hoe during a sporting oh event. He was a bad guy. But anyway, <laughs> so he was my terrible. worst math teacher. And I thought I was really, really bad at calculus. And then I took calculus in college and I got like 104. So I was like, I'm going to show this to him. A check plus. <laughs> but he had already gotten fired. <laughs> yeah, a check plus. So anyway, <laughs> teachers can be bad. <laughs> Yoon, were you thinking math teaching in the United States is bad because of individual teachers? Or are you saying like compared to what you experienced in Korea growing up? Is it like just a curriculum thing? I mean, it's complicated because in the United States, math teaching or any kind of teaching is not really controlled on a national level. Mm. It, you know, it goes down to state versus district. So individual schools can be quite good and individual schools, as some of you have experienced, can be quite bad. But also um, there's a tendency to teach towards the test. Right. Okay, one of the things I experienced teaching high school math was that we had a list of topics that we had to get through by the end of the year. Hmm. And it did not matter if the kids understood how to do X, Y, Z. We just had to cover the topic. So um, I don't know how much linear algebra you've had, but one of the topics was matrix multiplication, which, mm -hmm. you know, the first time you see it, it's kind of a difficult topic. I it just got upset. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it kind of tends to throw people for a loop the first time you see it. it. It's the sort of topic that you want to spend like a week or two, really two weeks on the first time people see it so that they really understand how it works. I was on day three, try, you know, working with the kids, improving their understanding of how matrix multiplication works, how it applies to things like linear transformations. And one of the veteran teachers said, look, you have a list of topics to get through. You've already spent three days on the you need to move on. Three days. Even though the kids didn't get it, they didn't understand it, except, you know, one or two of the very bright kids who were mm -hmm. naturally good at math. But mm -hmm. I did not have any choice but to move on, even though, like, it was a waste of everybody's time. I spent three days on a topic. Nobody understood it. As a result, when they saw it on a test, they weren't going to be able to do well on it. It was prioritizing, quote unquote, coverage over people actually learning math. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there are just systemic problems in the United States with teachers. Uh, generally, the things you want to make teaching attractive are good working conditions, which do not exist for many teachers, um, good pay, which does not exist for many teachers, and respect for the profession, which does not exist for many teachers. So, you know, people who go into teaching usually do it um, either because they're 
I mean, in some cases because they're desperate, but the people who really love it tend to burn out. Um, right. I got my teaching degree from Stanford University, and even among graduates from the Stanford teaching program, uh, the statistic was within five years, 50% of us would drop out of the profession mm. because of the bad working conditions. And I was a statistic. I didn't even last a year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when Rachel was talking about her super mean math teacher, I was kind of thinking, like, well, maybe he's just been beaten down. But then she said he called a girl a hoe, and I, I feel like that's not uh, – this is no, no excuse. No, that's just a bad person. <laughs> right. But just to – yeah, but just to say, like, yeah, probably it, it is the system a lot of the times that just uh, makes people ineffective. My One of my many, many sisters is an elementary school teacher. So she – Three. It's a lot in, you know, 21st century America. It's a lot of sisters. But she teaches second graders. Mm -hmm. They're very cute, but she doesn't make enough money. Yeah. North Carolina is one of the worst states, too, for paying teachers. If she moved across the border in, like, any direction, basically, she'd immediately make, you know, $12,000 more. But she has a master's and she has, you know, she makes no money. Mm -hmm. But kids are cute. She always sends us the funny things they say. (laughs) I've been kind of taking notes when I think of a question that I want to ask you, but I feel like, oh, now's not necessarily the time. This is sort of my impression of science fiction, which is that there used to be, it used to be that space operas were like very prominent, like maybe even the majority of the stuff that was like published and read, or at least, you know, when you think about like kind of pulpy sci-fi, I feel like a lot of those were space operas. Mm -hmm. And then these days there's almost a sort of pushback and people are sort of are sometimes talking about how they want like smaller, more personal stories. And I'm wondering if you have seen that at all, or if I'm totally off base. I mean, I don't think it's off base, but I think there's still a market for space opera. But there has been a movement towards, you know, more cottage core sorts of mm. stories. When <laughs> 2020 hit and the pandemic was a thing, for example, uh, the kind of fiction I normally like to read is the sort where you have horrible people doing horrible things and then they come to a horrible end and you get to feel good about horrible people coming to a horrible end. I mean, (laughs) my husband hates this kind of book. He's like, this is depressing. I was going to ask about your husband because you were like, are you having fun with this game? And then your husband is like, are you having fun reading this? (laughs) Why do you do this to yourselves? Yeah, my husband likes heroic characters and I'm like no I want to I want to write and read about terrible people coming to terrible ends but mm. in 2020 because of the state of the world I spent all of 2020 reading paranormal romance like shifter <laughs> romance like the billionaire werebear's curvy bride stories <laughs> because they were funny and they were uplifting yeah. and they were really cute and they had you know nice people having a happy ending and that was what I really needed in 2020 mm. Mm. so you didn't read kissing the coronavirus sorry no no <laughs> I, remember I did that not okay. I did not no I have friends who write shifter romances mm. some of them are making six figures doing it I was gonna say those make a lot of money yeah I know some people like mock the genre but you know if you go into it with a sense of humor I really enjoy, I genuinely enjoy those books and I needed something that was lighter reading so I think right now when the world is basically on fire right now and people don't necessarily want to read stressful books. They Mm. may want to read something like Becky Chambers' Wayfarer books, which are very cozy. You know, something that, or Catherine um, Addison, I think, the Goblin Emperor books Mm -hmm. that are in that vein that are basically about nice people doing the right thing. 
Mm-hmm. So I do think that exists, but space opera is certainly not dead. Um, oh, no, I wasn't. I didn't mean to imply that. I think what I meant more was that it used to be basically <laughs> sci-fi was space operas, but now it's more mixed. <laughs> I'm not sure it was all space opera. Certainly a lot of the pulp sci-fi could be filed under that category, but we also did have a lot of hard science fiction, mm-hmm. according to the science of the day. I mean, some of those stories have not aged well simply because technology has moved on. Mm-hmm. There was an anthology by David Hartwell and Catherine Kramer called The Ascent of Wonder, which is sort of this big book of hard science fiction through the history of science fiction. And there was this one really creepy story in which people um, had isolated the principle of life in what was called an animalcule, like an animal molecule. Hmm. And it escapes the laboratory and it takes over. And, you know, it's this creepy horror story. But the story is completely obsolete because it was written before the discovery of DNA. Oh. Mm. oh. So, like, nothing in the story works anymore. So, formerly hard sci-fi, currently, like, fantasy. <laughs> Yeah. When I was researching space operas and just trying to like educate myself from like the depths of the bottom of nowhere where my knowledge was, um, I came across the term for the genre planetary romance, which is like, Mm -hmm. is that the same as like cottagecore in space? Explain, Jackie. Elaborate. I'll try, but I'll probably need you to fix it. But just like (laughs) space opera is not actually an opera, planetary romance is not necessarily romance, but instead of having like great powers fighting each other in space a planetary romance just takes place like on the one planet and i think a lot of um some of my favorite what i had considered sci-fi books are probably actually planetary romances so like kurt vonnegut sirens of titan like yes they're traveling between different worlds but a lot of the time you know it's more about like you said just like personal things that are happening on a different planet or in a different kind of context so is that how you would explain it or I think planetary romance I mean I'm not an expert on science fiction subgenres but planetary romance the term probably comes from romance in the earlier sense of the word of sort of like an adventure like hmm. the way that king arthur and his knights are a romance in uh-huh. you know in the medieval sense so a planetary romance might be like edgar rice burroughs barsoom books where you have people on you know back when they thought venus was made of swamps and had breathable (laughs) atmosphere and people have basically adventures. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like adventure fiction, but set on another planet. Like the otherness of the planet is what kind of gives rise to the ability to have the adventures. Yes. Gives it the spice. Well, don't talk about spice. Now we're going to get back into Dune. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I have not actually read Dune. I got 50 pages into it in college and said, I don't like this book. It's really boring. And I put it down. And my husband's like, you are missing out on one of the classic books of science fiction. And I'm like, there are 50 million classic books of science fiction. (laughs) I cannot read them all. I'm just going to put down the one that I don't like. And I I may be missing out on some of the history, but again, it's not possible to read every book. Well, have I got a podcast recommendation for you? (laughs) Hate to plug, but we did in one episode, we summarized everything you need to know about Dune so that you don't have to read it, basically. And I will say it was the most unpleasant episode that I have ever prepared for (laughs) because I had to condense, you know, 500 pages into like a 
two-page outline and be like, this is what we have to talk about on the episode. (laughs) I mean, the thing about Dune is that it's historically important. Like, it influenced a lot of things. And also, I don't have to read every book that's historically important. (laughs) I'm not a literature professor. The literature professors can deal with that. I'm just a writer. Hmm. I have a math degree. Like, I I don't even understand how literature works, arguably. (laughs) Does anybody? I don't know. I have to say, I think that personally, I like the new Dune movie more than the book. So mm-hmm. I would recommend to someone, if someone was like, should I read it? I would probably say, just watch the movie. And then in the time that you save, read some other books. Mm-hmm. Unless you watch the movie and you loved it and you're like, I can't get enough. Then, okay, sure, read the book. But now at this point, I've had to read it twice. Mm-hmm. And I wish that I had only read it once. <laughs> I actually uh, picked up a graphic novel adaptation of the Dune book, which is like part one of three because the book is so long. Mm-hmm. And I actually really liked it in graphic novel form because there was less exposition. Everything was in (laughs) pictures. And so it was sort of like made accessible to someone like me who just um, did not get along with the prose. Mm. It's funny because every time I mention Dune, I... Every time it starts to get to this point, I say, let's not talk about Dune. And then we always end up talking about Dune. We have to. (laughs) But I end up enjoying it anyway. (laughs) I really like talking about Dune and like making Dune references much more than I like (laughs) I just love to be like, oh my gosh, it's a Gamjabar or something. Just if I see something in my everyday life, that could be a a Gamjabar, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, everyone. I hope you've been enjoying what you've been hearing. If you have and you would like to support us, why don't you hit up our Patreon? It's patreon.com slash firethecanon. You can find all sorts of great stuff there. Bonus content. There's stickers. Plus, Theo needs a sponsor patron again. So now could be the time. (laughs) My sponsor patron bailed on us. (laughs) I haven't confronted her about it. But we all await your uh, story about what happens with bated breath. Yeah. If you have a bone to pick with Theo and you just really like to confront him about something, become his patron, cancel, and then wait for him to come to you. Yeah. Yes. The easiest way to get in touch with Theo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's the only thing he'll respond yep. to. Check us out on all our social media platforms. We got Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Fire the Cannon Pod. We got a Facebook group and a Facebook announcements page at Fire the Cannon Podcast. We have an email address, firethecannonpodcast at gmail.com. And a website. We have a website that's firethecannonpodcast.com. All right, now back to the episode. Space opera, I feel like the whole interesting thing about it is that it's so grand and so big and and on such a huge scale. Like, Mm -hmm. how do you keep track of all of that in your brain and like how like what what leads a person to be like that i don't when i like i'm working on the third dragon pearl series book and there are these major characters that i introduced in chapter two and every time they turn up in chapter seven i'm like name in brackets because i can't be bothered (laughs) to look up their name i'll fix it in revisions i don't care that probably breaks people's hearts who are like i love this character and then it's like (laughs) oh the author doesn't even remember what they were called (laughs) you know 
with machineries, like I got to this point where I was trying to desperately to create a series Bible for the trilogy. And then like midway through, I think it was the second book or something, a fan showed up and made a wiki. Mm -hmm. And like they put in so much work, like they made a wiki for the entire trilogy. Almost everything's on it. And I'm like, I have lost all motivation to put together my own series Bible. Someone has done it for me. I can be lazy and just go to the wiki. That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, I'm very grateful to that fan. Did you ever contact that fan and just say, you've saved me? I have met them. They they are wonderful. (laughs) Okay. Nice. Wow. I'm curious, um, you know, I imagine because there's time between books when you're writing a series. Do you feel like you're ever influenced by fan reactions to things? Like if people seem to like a certain character, do you feel like you end up writing that character differently in the second book or something like that? Machineries actually had a very obvious case of this. So Mm. Nine Fox Gambit, at the time I sold Nine Fox Gambit, I had a complete draft of Raven Stratagem and I had half a draft of Revenant Gun. Okay. That said, you know, I was going to revise books two and three. And when Nine Fox Gambit was actually published, the one thing that took me by surprise was that a lot of readers really loved the servitors, the little robots that have their own society, you know, their secret <laughs> society that the, the people in power don't know about. And I was like, I did not expect the robots to take <laughs> off. This is mainly because this is a bad thing to admit, but I'm not really into robots in science fiction. I just don't find them very interesting uh, on their own. But the readers love the servitors so much that I gave them a bigger role in Raven Stratagem. (laughs) And I added a servitor POV to Revenant Gun because I was pandering. (laughs) It worked for me. (laughs) I always love little robots. If I hear little robot, I'm in. I little anything. Like you go to a grocery store. Oh, there's a tiny lemon. I want that. I don't need it. I want it though. And yeah, again, it's just kind of like being a god. Like maybe God's like, I didn't, I really don't like kittens, but you know, they seem to be a hit. So I guess I'll just keep making more and more and more of them. (laughs) All over the internet. God scrolling through his Facebook, seeing all the cat pictures. It's like, I gotta make more of these. I have to admit, part of the reason I got turned off robot stories is that in a lot of science fiction frequently science fiction written by men, you have robots that are sexy women robots that exist to pander to the you know male hero. And I was like, I'm kind of done with this. I'm out. Uh, mm-hmm. Tiny robots like R2-D2. I, get, I, I like R2-D2, but, but yeah. sort of the sexy lady robot thing, eh, not my thing. <laughs> I'm sure somebody finds R2-D2 sexy. No kink shaming. It's out there. <laughs> BB-8 is cute. I'm going to ignore what Jackie just said, but I, I love R2-D2 and BB-8. I don't really like very humanoid robots. Sorry, C-3PO. I think the other reason I find robots difficult as a writer is that when you're writing a robot, um, it's sort of in the same category for me as writing an alien. You're writing about an intelligence that works fundamentally differently than a human intelligence. And I find that very difficult and kind of tricky to do. Seth Dickinson has the opposite opinion. He's like, no, no, aliens and robots are great because no one can tell you you're doing it wrong. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's true. I mean, but can can people really tell you you're doing people wrong? I mean, I feel like people are pretty varied. I mean, I guess they could say that, but they'd be wrong. I I mean, if you try to talk about like, oh, you know, everyone, the gills that everyone has. Yeah. 
something like that. <laughs> you might get a little pushback. Yeah. <laughs> There's primordial forms, but um, yeah, you talk about how their characters can retract their ears inside their head, and but yeah, so I don't know. I just think it's interesting this conception of like how something becomes popular because people love it, or just like not because the creator wanted to put it there. Because I think a lot of times I fall into this like I just assume that if if something is in a, a work of art or a book or something, it's because the author wanted it to be there. And you probably know from, maybe not from teaching math, but, you know, literature teachers are always like, well, you know, the trope is, what does each thing symbolize? Like, I have to teach the kids, like, each of these things is a symbol and all of them are really important. <laughs> but then you just have like, well, the robots just keep coming back because people like the robots. Like, yeah. the author doesn't really love the robots so much. Like, Or something like uh, Spencer's The Fairy Queen, which is was this poem written during Queen Elizabeth's era, mainly for the pu- purposes of sucking up to the queen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or I was thinking of the Porgs from Star Wars, like the new version where it's like, well, they just had a bunch of puffins and they couldn't get rid of them in the film. So they had to cover them up with some type of CGI. And that's how Porgs became a thing. Yeah, Like that's one of my favorite facts. It's so funny to me. Yeah. It's cute too. I just really like cute things, I guess. She does. I'm finding out more and more. <laughs> I, I haven't even seen the movie that has Porgs and I really just want a Porg. I just love them. Hexercat has like cats. One of the characters has cats. And the cats became extremely popular. But that one, at least I was prepared for because I'm a cat person. Yeah. Not a robot person, though. (laughs) Not a robot person. I'm willing to write them. It's just, I don't know. I I don't have an innate affinity with robots. Hmm. That's probably good. (laughs) (laughs) I recently went to the Smithsonian with a friend and they have a new exhibit called the Futures Exhibit. Mm -hmm. That's very much like sponsored by uh, like Marvel and Virgin and all these other companies, but it also has some good stuff in there. But we were looking at an exhibit that was like, in the future, uh, robots are going to be a big thing. And what would you think if your kid brought home a robot for a friend? And I was with a couple friends and I was like, oh, that would be fine with me. No problem. I love robots. I'd love it. <laughs> and my friend was like, I would hate it. And I thought she was joking, but she went on at length and I was like, okay, <laughs> she is prejudiced against robots. <laughs> like, I guess it's not a problem now because wow. they're not really around, but wow. this is going to be a civil rights issue in about 50 years. <laughs> She's primed. Yeah, no, uh, thinking about AI and sentience and putting restrictions on what an AI or a sentient robot could do. And I'm like, is this really ethical to do when there are creations, but they, if they have a mind of their own, they should have the ability to exercise free will. And uh. to what extent does that turn into a Battlestar Galactica Cylon situation? Right. You know, it's a very interesting question. Or a never let me go situation. Yeah. Yeah. Never let me go. Are they robots? No, they're not, but they're like created they for a purpose. And yeah. Sorry, spoilers. They're clones. Well, yeah, I feel like when you when you put very intelligent robots in a book, it almost has to be like all about that or set way after the answer has already been decided because mm-hmm. it kind of takes over everything. <laughs> so I had another space opera question, if you don't mind sure. talking about space operas a little more. There is, I'm sure you've read this list before if you're a space opera person, but the writer Brian Aldis had like a checklist of 10 points 
saying like the ideal space opera has these 10. <laughs> and I was thinking for the audience who still maybe isn't familiar, I could kind of read through it and you let me know if you agree or disagree. Sure. Um, I, I don't think I've seen this list, actually. Oh, okay. I mean, I'm familiar with Aldous's work, but I have not seen this list. Okay. Well, then I guess you're not a space opera person. No, I'm just all right, number one, the world must be in peril. Yes. Okay. Hmm. There must be a quest. Yes. Okay. And then the originalist says a man or woman to meet the mighty hour, but I guess I would just say person, probably. At yeah, this point. person. Space opera is one of those genres where, so I almost majored in history before I realized that I wanted to be able to eat. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things you learn is that a lot of historical movements are due to masses of people doing things instead of like that one ended, mm. you know, the great person theory of history. But space opera really thrives on that great person. It really mm. lionizes the influence of an individual. So that is definitely a characteristic. All right. I have a follow up question about that. Um so, like, in the space opera, like you said, it seems like that really tends to hold on to, like, that one great character, that one, like, individual. Like, mm -hmm. I'm curious, like, again, kind of coming from South Korea and living in America for a long time and, like, you know, we always hear about how the West is, like, so much more, like, individualistic and focused on the individual. Um, do you feel like space opera is... I don't want to say like a Western invention because I don't really know where it came from. But do you feel like space operas can also not be individualistic or I don't do you kind of see what I'm asking? Like, yeah, no, I, I think that's actually a very good question. I would agree generally that Korean culture is more collectively oriented, more societally oriented than American culture. Certainly when my parents immigrated to the United States, they had a lot of culture shock around that. So space opera is a very Western genre. I would say the other thing that makes it very American specifically is the high levels of violence. Mm. Hmm. I sent my books over to a friend in Germany and she was like, you know, these levels of acceptance of shooting things to solve problems would not be acceptable in a German book huh. because they're more sensitive to the implications of violence, whereas violence is highly normalized in American entertainment and media. Uh, the other issue with um, trying to show mass movements of people versus, you know, the effect of the individual is that it's really hard to write a compelling story about like, you know, 10,000 people all at once. Yeah. <laughs> Human brains are wired to focus on the specific and the individual, like our relationships yeah. with specific people. And I think that is probably the biggest practical reason why space operas and many narratives focus on that one individual hero or group of heroes. I was going to say, Jackie, if you're interested in reading, for example, there's a really, really famous Chinese sci-fi book that's in translation now called The Three-Body Problem. The Three-Body Problem. Yes. Yeah, it's on my list. And I was just kind of thinking about how that would relate to your question because it has multiple like great people who were pivotal, I think. Have you read it, Yoon? I have not read it, but I have certainly heard of it. The other thing I find interesting about Chinese science fiction, I've read a couple examples, is that they have a very long sense of deep time, like the sense that hundreds of years of history or even thousands of years of history have culminated in this moment. And I often find that American science fiction tends to have a very shallow sense of time. Mm. Because we haven't been around that long. And I, I guess like, you know, my first question, I could have also just said instead of Western, like it's 
Um, I mean, there is no society that I know of that's more individualistic than America. <laughs> to yeah. our detriment. <laughs> and, and I just came from visiting my boyfriend in Singapore for a few weeks. And I was just, you know, obviously it's a couple weeks. It's not that much. But I just came back and I was just like, why can't we care about each other? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's obviously problems wherever you go. But it's just, mm-hmm. yeah, I've been thinking a lot about like our individualism lately. And it just kind of made me wonder about how that relates to, to literature and science fiction. Right. Huh? There you go. Uh, yeah. Thank you for answering that. All right. Number four. <laughs> that person must confront aliens and exotic creatures. I think most space opera does this. I would not say it's mandatory in a modern space opera, but, you know, your mileage may vary. <laughs> I guess technically humans, if they're from another planet, are aliens. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Space must flow past the ports like wine from a pitcher. Huh? <laughs> I don't even know what no. that means. Okay. <laughs> so you got very poetic. I guess that's a no. <laughs> okay. Number six. I think I'm guessing what he's saying is that space is big and like you travel across a lot of it and it's easy to get around. So a lot of stuff is happening. <laughs> yeah. So it's not like you're just for a long time traveling and traveling and traveling and the motion parallax of this one star moves like one degree like you kind of have to see everything (laughs) yeah no i mean if you notice in the star wars movies like they hop from planet to planet Mm -hmm. you know travel is not really a difficult thing it's not the situation where you have a generation ship and it'll take them two thousand years to get there right so i think if that's what all this meant then i agree with it it's just that it's (laughs) it's phrased in such a weird way (laughs) well because everything else is like you got to have an alien You know, like, why did he get all poetic on this one? (laughs) I think you're going to love the phrasing of this one. Blood must rain down the palace steps. Yes. Like wine? Yeah. (laughs) Everything's like wine from now on. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So that's a yes. And the next one. And ships must launch out into the lowering dark. L-O-U-R-I-N-G. Oh, yeah, the, the glowering dark, the, the sort of dark and brooding darkness. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I think I would generally agree with this. Okay. If you have a space opera and, like, they don't have starships every in every direction, it's not a space opera-y. Yeah. Okay, last three. These are, well, I was going to say these are a little less poetic, but I was wrong. There must be a woman or man fairer than the skies. The skies. I think that's a product of its time. (laughs) (laughs) These days, you can have a character who's just as fair as the skies. No need to be any fairer. (laughs) That's the difference. (laughs) (laughs) All right, number nine. There must be a villain darker than a black hole. Generally, yes. Space opera is not really known for moral subtlety. Yeah. <laughs> like Star Wars, there is good and there is evil, you know? No no shades of gray. And then the last one, all must come right in the end. Yeah, it tends to be a happy ending. Sort of evil things happen. They go out and fight it with their spaceships or lightsabers or robots or whatever. And then there's a happy ending. If it ends horribly, it could be like, military science fiction you can certainly have a downer ending in military science fiction but space opera really is sort of a happy melodrama mm. so i think the, these are pretty much on point despite the weird phrasing and sort of um, they just got weirder and weirder <laughs> yeah for sure it's like what am i agreeing to here <laughs> thank you yeah i've considered you all to have signed the contract <laughs> um so you agreed with those 10 things it sounds like are there any that you think it's missing um no, but I mean, I'm not I'm not a librarian. I'm not good at categorization. <laughs> okay. 
Well, I wanted to, what I like to do is um, with our podcast, usually since we're reading like, you know, the Western canon of literature, most of the books we read tend to be older and for the most part written by straight white guys. Although, of course, there are a bunch of like closeted white guys as well who wrote a lot of classics. But um, that's part of the reason we like to do interviews. <laughs> because, I, you know, I like to read everything. I like to read a lot of contemporary stuff as well. And I like to give people, you know, options for things to read ideally with like a more diverse writer base, especially as someone who grew up as like a small brown girl who wanted to read books with other small brown girls in them. <laughs> mm -hmm. And also because we've tried emailing those dead white guys and they just never respond. So. Yeah, they never <laughs> get back to us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but so whenever we have writers on, I like to kind of ask, do you have any recommendations if there's anything you know, in your genre that you think is like another great example or books that influenced you that people might not have heard about or honestly just like stuff you're reading that you think is really great. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you've heard about this book, Gideon the Ninth by Tamsin Weir. So this is science fantasy slash space opera. And basically it's lesbian necromancers in space. Yes. That's the pitch. I don't know. That wow. sounds kind of overdone. <laughs> so it's not to everybody's tastes. It's very in your face, but I enjoyed it tremendously. I think the author is kind of a mad genius, probably. I've never met her. Oh, yeah. I love how you just like didn't even have to think for a second. You were like, here it is. And I have it on camera. Oh, let me grab yeah. this. Yeah. No, I love I love Gideon the Ninth. I the uh, Tamsin Weir is like one of my authors on my list of people I really want to come on the podcast, but she doesn't have any contact info. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I'll never give up. Do you have anything else that you'd like to suggest? Anything else you want to foist on our listeners <laughs> while you have them? Um, my latest book is Tiger Honor. This is an ARC because I don't know. I like to scribble on the margins and I feel less bad if it's an ARC. Ah. It is about Sebin, a non-binary tiger spirit who wants to become a starship captain one day. And the day that they get accepted to become a cadet is the same day that their beloved uncle, who they've looked up to all their life, is revealed as a traitor very dramatic so they have to they have to navigate you know being basically a child soldier on on a spaceship and the fact that the ship has been hijacked by their uncle wow. oh gosh it's like into the spider-verse but like a lot different <laughs> just because there's an, an uncle an uncle like, that betrays yeah so that's my latest book well Regardless, I think anyone who's listening should definitely read at least one of Yoon's books. Phoenix Extravagant is a standalone, correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay. So if you're someone who's like, I don't want to read a whole trilogy, like I'm not into getting involved in that at the moment, you should check out Phoenix Extravagant. Check out the middle grade reader books if that's more your speed and Nine Fox Gambit if you want some like very cool mathy sci-fi with like a very interesting sort of villain slash anti-hero. Very good stuff. It's on my list of sci-fis I recommend to everyone. <laughs> yeah, I think you have a real knack for titles. How do you decide on titles or is it is it something that your editors have a lot of um 
my editors helped me because my okay nine fox gambit was originally titled nine fox and suicide hawk and one of my friends commented that this sounded like two superheroes who couldn't come up with any good <laughs> names and i'm like okay this title has to oh, go no. so actually i'm really terrible at titles and my editors hold my hand oh. Oh, okay. but see you can succeed as a writer if you suck at titles because the editors will bail you out mm. for me i can come up with great titles but i just can't write a book to save my life <laughs> team up with someone <laughs> no i'm ju- i'm just kidding i don't i don't i can't really write i can't come up with titles either <laughs> uh, what you need to do is pair up with somebody who can't do titles for shit but it has plots all over the place plots all over the place honestly it's practice you know it's like roller skating or playing basketball or playing the the piano or you know it's or I don't know, brain surgery, hypothetically. That's not something I do. <laughs> no, like, no. Yeah, all things that I'm terrible at. Thanks, Yoon. <laughs> no, really, anything. Like, even mathematics. Mathematics, people think that math is something you're either born good at or, you're, you know, you're all, you always suck at it. But unless you have dyscalculia, which is, which is very real. Some people have, you know, learning disorder issues. It's like anything else. You practice it and you learn to be good at it. The stories that I was writing when I was in third grade were really terrible. (laughs) 30 years later, I'm a little better than I used to be. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You have to foster that that growth mindset, which is another little psychology bit coming out. But I think it is a thing that especially girls learning math in America do tend to have this idea of like you're born with math skills or you're not. Yeah, which unfortunately, you know, when you look at math scores in elementary school, they're pretty much the same across the board. And it's when you hit high school that Mm -hmm. girls' grades take a drop. So it's definitely a social pressure thing. One of my other many sisters was a math major in college. She loves math, but she's going to be a dentist instead. Mm-hmm. You only have to count so high when you're a dentist. Right. <laughs> Ideally. If you major in math, you might have to count really high. And that yeah, if you have sense. to count higher than 30-something, <laughs> you've got a problem. <laughs> As though math is just like being a vampire and you have to count everything you see. <laughs> oh, sorry. I'm loopy. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, any other questions, Jackie, Theo? We're good. I think we're good. Got a lot of good stuff in there. You and you were a great guest. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Yoon, so much for your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to y'all. Oh, thank thank you. you so much. Yeah, we had a we had a very nice time talking to you and I look forward to buying your newest book to give to myself and a middle schooler. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in. We had a really great time with Yoon Holly and we're just so thankful to him for agreeing to come on the podcast and we hope we'll come back at some point in the future yeah he was great <laughs> I know so much insider info seriously yeah. a lot of robot talk yeah he's just done so many things that it's like uh, that's a thing I could probably ask about all our guests are great so if you like this episode and you've never listened to us before, we highly encourage you to go back and check out some of our back catalog. Maybe our Dune episode. Yeah, check out our Dune episode, sure, if you want. Like, make my suffering worthwhile. Other uh, sci-fi writers, because they are just a really nice group of people, and they're the ones who always love to come on and talk with us. So we do have a lot of those. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We've had a lot of really great 
other writers come on and talk to us. So scroll on back through, check those out. Get your scroll on. And stay tuned because I'm sure we'll have some more of your faves coming down the pipeline any day now. And uh, yeah, as always, we really appreciate all of our listeners and guests and Patreon supporters. We just appreciate everyone who appreciates us. <laughs> so thanks so much. <laughs> <laughs> just makes us feel warm and fuzzy. We love doing this. Thanks, guys. It really does. Thank you so much. Mm. All right. Bye, everyone. Goodbye, audience. Bye, Bye now. Bye now.